Hello and welcome back again. This is part two of The Covid Files, a dive of the deepest kind into an investigation of the entire political economy of the Covid period. And joining me again from Canada under the strictest form of lockdown from an undisclosed location is Leila Mashoe. Hello again. <laughs> hello, hello. Nice to join you again. I, I feel like I've, this, I've only... I've only talked about this for like three months and a lot of it has been over with you and over the DMs and on this podcast. So let, let's let, yeah, let's but let's get ourselves banned in the best way possible the, for, for defending the for something that matters for, for, <laughs> for putting the, uh, the immortal science of Marxism to the test and finding it to be finding it to be correct. But a lot of the official <laughs> exactly. Marxists to be very wrong. OK, um, well, we're going to roll straight into the first item on the agenda here. What we're going to be looking at today is a few things. One main thing that will be the focus of this episode, which we'll come to a little bit later, which is the case against the lockdowns. Why it was never right to lock down in the first place, and the damage that it has done, and the nonsensical reasons given for supporting it, particularly now when we're almost a year in. So we'll come to that later. But first on the agenda today, I'm going to be looking at the man who would be king, or maybe Mr. St. Joseph of Biden, <laughs> or St. Joseph of Scranton. The man who is single-handedly, in his name do we pray. In his he name. He has issued lightning bolts from Mount Olympus to be carved on tablets of, well, tablets speci specifically provided by Apple. Uh, that will that will beat the virus with the sheer decency that he is restored to the office of president by removing Donald Trump's hateful stench from the place and of course removing his diet coke button, the most crucial thing of all. And so Biden in new new plan for COVID, Fauci promoted uh, to chief medical advisor, if that means anything. And, of course, the U.S. reaffirms its commitment to the World Health Organization that Donald Trump had threatened to leave. So, Fauci gave his press conference yesterday stating that the science has been restored, that uh, science is believed again, which is pretty good coming from a man who's changed his mind on masks, changed his mind on lockdowns, and changed his mind on herd immunity by his own admission, according to opinion polls. So, dignity and science restored. Um... I wanted to start with this because, aside, joking aside, Biden's put in place this. It's amazing. Uh, amazing. He's got this new plan, um, which does connect to the main topic of our show today, which is the, the, the lockdowns. He's planned to beat COVID. Doesn't actually mention lockdowns, the, five point, the, the, the several points of the plan that he's put out so far. So... Um, Layla, do you want to start there? You've looked, you've looked at the plan as, as I have. What do you, what do you think, looking at it in terms of what it actually means? Well, I mean, I, I think it kind of reinforces the interpretation of the situation which we talked about last show. Um, that um, uh, so, I mean, I, I think in conversation with you as well, um, it. It is, it's another piece in me realizing how much of this is just marketing towards the investor class of the bourgeoisie. So our position is that there was a structural crisis that was due. And what we're seeing now in terms of the relatively lower employment rate overall 
um, since the start of the pandemic is actually is what is actually the start of a recession. So I think that the plan is very clearly a um, way of boosting um, investor confidence and trying to uh, dig the United States out of this recession as quickly as possible. So the, of course, the entire premise is that uh, the, the bourgeoisie's entire premise is that it's actually COVID-19 that is causing the economic downturn. Um, and so I think what they're doing is pretty smart because if they if if Biden is able to market his recovery plan as a way of getting people back to work safely, a lot of the concerns that the bourgeoisie has in terms of, you know, consumer confidence. So there's been a lot of worry in the bourgeois press about how people may not go to restaurants anyways because they're scared of getting the virus. Um um, in terms of like, you know, whether um, we'll ever be able to come out of lockdown because we don't have a vac- we don't have sufficient levels of vaccination yet. It addresses all of these fears. And so I think I think really I don't think that the plan does anything. It's not going to change anything on the ground in terms of the amount of people dying or death rates. I have very low confidence that this vaccine is significantly effective uh, only because the disease is not harmful to most people anyways. Um, but even in terms of the people that it is harmful towards, um, I don't think that the vac- so far data, data coming out of the most vaccinated country in the world, Israel, is showing very bad results. And it's well known in the literature that um, vaccinations are far less effective on the elderly than they are on the young. And a little known fact is that there was very few elderly people tested um, in the in the trials. So it's, it's actually kind of unknown how effective these will be in real life when given to the elderly. In any case, it doesn't matter anyways, because it's just supposed to give the perception that things are back to normal. COVID is solved. COVID, we, we, we've won over COVID. And people will start going back to consuming more and blah, blah, blah. And it's supposed to rectify the crisis. But um, I will see if it actually we'll see what happens. I, I don't I don't think that the I, I think. Yeah, that, well, that's I my largely agree. I think, think? That looking through it, it, a lot of it is just uh, fluff and marketing, as a lot of this has been from the very beginning. So this is um, one di- thing did jump out at me, though, which is point five, which he says, well, whoever wrote it said, safely reopen schools, businesses, and travel while protecting workers. Now, that's what, in his own garbled way, Trump proposed back in the late summer period and was promptly monstered all over the place for it. For it. Uh, it was proposed via one of his advisors, this uh, Dr. Scott Atlas, who proposed it and then was immediately attacked and then um, discredited and was spent all his time apologizing for an interview he'd given on Russia Today, um, but essentially then Biden rolls around and the same thing is proposed. It's because, I mean, we've said in uh, previous episodes that um, one motivation for the dominant section of the U.S. ruling class was the the wish that they had to dispose of Trump and the, their willingness to use the pandemic to do so. Well, the fact that Biden then adopts one of Trump's advisors' ideas as to how to reopen says that it was never about science it was never about evidence it was never about um you know a scientific process driving policy if you, that's even a possible or a desirable a political outcome and this is this is the confirmation of that it's it's word for it's word for word what was proposed earlier on under trump so but of course none of this will be covered and it will be declared by probably late winter early spring that thanks to biden's inspired leadership of following the science there's been 
uh, enough confidence restored. There's there's enough health measures in place. Confidence restored. Everybody can go back to work. Everything can reopen. Um, they've had the uh, gigantic transfers of money, of public money, through the two, possibly now three, depending upon the votes in Congress, <coughs> relief bills. So, and of course, then the Federal Reserve's continued its uh, propping up of the giant uh, debt and asset bubbles through quantitative easing. So everything they needed to get out of this period, they've got. And of course, Trump has gone. So now it's time to restore and get back into it. And the other added factor I would just throw in there is that um, if they can preempt a, a crisis that was coming anyway by doing this, then they're going to then it, by pumping up confidence in the system, basically, and trying to buy themselves a few more years, then maybe they can put off the big reckoning from 2008 to 10, which is due to come, which is the fact that none of the gigantic debt bubbles that the uh, US or British economy is based on has gone away. And so Biden's plan is just one more piece of marketing. Yeah, absolutely. And on your um, to your point on Trump, um, you know, something um, I was especially annoyed to see, well, I mean, not annoyed, not surprised, <laughs> just uh, just interested to see is the plan to reopen schools, um, which Trump has been calling for since the um, summer. Um, and he got enormous pushback uh, from people about being unsafe, about putting children and teachers in danger, of course, joined by the unions. Um, and so now I foresee actually the unions will trail will be a little bit behind maybe not the unions like I think that the fact that the unions have pushed this um, rhetoric of danger and of how schools are unsafe and stuff like that so fiercely onto their membership to um, garner consent for their refusal to go back to work I think will leave a lot of teachers behind and I'm already seeing a lot of uh, people in the left and yeah. right bourgeois press starting to turn against the teachers um so, yeah, so which I think is really unfortunate because um, usually teachers do have a fair amount of out of different workers. They have a fair amount of support. And I think that's going to start dissipating and the bourgeoisie is going to really use it to break whatever labor organization they have left. Um, so I think that's really unfortunate. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that you no know, one was kind of there to lead those workers in a way that um, based on, you know, actual evidence and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Like, I, I'm interested in seeing the response from the left writ large um, to uh, the reopening. And I think it'll be subject to a lot of like, what I would probably deem more culture war yeah. type stuff like where to wear masks when to wear masks is it okay i've seen i've seen a lot of um of uh of scientific chatter of epidemiologists wondering if we should still avoid seeing friends if we even if we've gotten the vaccine which is such a ridiculous yeah. question what, on a scientific, scientific basis, view on my social life i think that most of this is can just be considered <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> Is it is it morally okay? Like it's just it's so stupid. Like they're trying to recast what is essentially a personal and political decision as a scientific question that is based on eternal natural laws or something like that, which absolutely it isn't. So yeah, it'll be interesting to watch little cultural wars and see like you know what policies will kind of remain. I think masking will stay for a long time. Well, they need that um, to. Uh, but I think overall we'll be seeing booster. a return back to normal within a couple of months most 
Yeah, exactly. I think masks are really key for that. I agree. Um, It was always a key part of the messaging, like from the start. Um, You know, it, it allows the bourgeoisie to both say that this is a extremely dangerous and, you know, uh, perilous disease, but also it's okay to go to work every day in a crowded workspace and taking crowded transit and stuff like that. So it's, it's a really, it's a perfect ideological tool. It's, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, so unfortunately I think masks will probably stay for a while. Uh, but I think it is kind of, kind of depends, it depends on the culture where that, that plays out. Like I think if the right is able to really assert itself on that issue, we might see it, we might see masks go away earlier rather than later, but the right has been quite well yes here, i mean so, we've talked about uh, this before but the, it's been revealed just how uh, little power the the set the factions of capital that express themselves through the bourgeois right wing these days actually have given that um the the supposedly uh, conservative party in this country uh went all in on everything to do with masking lockdowns restrictions on um the what what uh, the more libertarian end of the right would call uh, personal liberty. Um, they were all in on that. And the, the, the remaining sort of English uh, right-wing figures in the media, like Peter Hitchens and a few like him, were saying, well, why why the hell are you doing all of this? And citing the things that they uh, believe in. But it the, it didn't receive any hardly any resonance inside the Conservative Parliamentary Party at all. Even there's been like some some elements of rebellion i think some of the mm-hmm. cabinet are getting a little bit restive but as we've said before if this was something that was seriously threatening capital accumulation in a way that was going to damage the ruling class then it wouldn't be happening and that's why the revolts so far have been isolated to a few yeah. more radical end of the conservative party the more uh, sort of petty bourgeois libertarian end because big capital is not suffering at all Mm-hmm. And I, I think, to be honest, I, I, you know, obviously small capital, some segments of some small capitals have suffered quite a bit, like the leisure and travel industry has, has suffered a lot. Um, for instance, it's seen huge on, uh, employment loss. And it, it, it with the coming of the new the second wave of the lockdowns, unlike other segments of the economy, it's seen a, um, a another decline. Um, but I think I, I think, though, like even the effect on the small bourgeoisie has been amplified um i was unable to find information from the united states about small business closures but um, of course in canada there is a large amount of small businesses that go out of business every year like there's a lot of churn in that sector as i've mentioned before um and this year the small business kind of uh, association that we have in canada is predicting um up to up to like Probably their their best estimate is fifty percent more closures than usual. So yes, that is a large amount, but it's definitely not an ap- apocalyptic like end of time scenario that's been painted by the petty bourgeoisie. It's not yeah. like the end of small business as we know it or whatever. Um, many of them were able to like takeout was always available. Many of them were able to survive, um, you know, by adapting new technologies by <clears throat> switching to delivery, for instance. Um, so yeah, like I, I think that um, maybe part of the reason why we haven't seen so much resistance from the petty bourgeoisie, uh, another reason is because they, you know, I think the effects of this have been over exaggerated as well um, on them, economically speaking. And so the resistance has, um, you know, um, uh, like consequently yeah, been, it's been uh, relatively less bad small. Than we would have um, there have been growing <clears throat> demonstrations, but it's not to the point where the government would have to take it seriously so far 
This may change if there's increased bankruptcies after state support is fully withdrawn. Um, we'll have to we'll have to see how that works shapes yeah, itself okay, that's out. A, that's a good point but too. Until exactly. then, it's difficult yeah. to judge what the 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 medium yeah. to long term impact will be on small business. Just judging anecdotally, locally, most of the the high street near me, which is all um, all small business and one like a chain supermarket they all seem to be surviving um and mainly through um a lot of the cafes mm-hmm. have just moved to takeaway so a lot of people are still obviously still working so you'll see big lunch queues sl- uh, socially distanced lunch queues going all the way down the pavement um but they're still obviously <laughs> doing a decent doing doing a decent mm-hmm. trade when the supports were drawn it might be another it might be another story so that Mm. That's a key element. Yeah, that I but had, then again, how much of that yeah, is exactly. going to be yeah. put down to the pandemic, and how much of it is going to be down to uh, a, a fundamental problem in uh, British, American, and Canadian capitalism anyway, which is the the, the long term unsolved structural problem from well, nominally twelve years ago. The answer is none of it will be put on <laughs> long-term structural problems and all of it will be put on. I think the way they're going to play this is they're going to say the economy is not picking up yet because people um, are scared. So they're scared to go and get dinner and go out to the movies and stuff like that because um, because of the, the, uh, the after effects of the pandemic. And I think what they're also going to say is, um, you know, if people had just followed the rules, we could have come out of lockdown earlier and avoided a lot of these, um, yeah. uh, the subsequent economic damages. So I think a lot uh, this like individualization, I mean, that's been going on for a while mm. um, since the start, of course, but I think that's going to become a really big talking point um, within the bourgeoisie and especially the scientific community as they're, as the data is coming in showing the ineffectiveness of the lockdowns, they'll yeah. just be like, oh, it's because no one followed them. It's because people still want to see yeah. their friends and stuff, despite the guidelines yeah. and stuff. Which like leads that. us nicely into so we'll the two. Um, well, I want. I'm going to call them pseudo scientific stories that we're talking about in this episode, which is the uh, the PCR test story, which has been floating around for the last few days, which we're going to look at first. Which is this: the every night in Britain. Uh, on the BBC News, they and the and ITN News, the two main news channels, and Sky, they have this ever spiraling, very dramatic looking line graph of cases of COVID. And again, the, if you know how this number is come to, you would have had suspicions over its validity anyway. But what it's presented as is this uh, ever spiraling, out of control, runaway train of a disease, which is. Uh, filling up the hospitals, which is tipping the NHS to the point of collapse, which is basically causing society to buckle. And that's the lead graphic that provides the backdrop to all those dramatic sensationalist narratives. And it turns out that the test that they've been using is not a reliable one, to say the least. And it may be that that um, is inflating the numbers wildly, and that all of the that lead graph that gives so much credence to the scare stories that follow it is something which is based on a completely erroneous unscientific method so do you want to go into a little bit about why that is 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's like a really long story behind this PCR test. Um, one of the things that's been coming to light lately, uh, led by Naomi Wolf, who's a journalist out in the United States, um, is that um, the study that was used to like kind of lend scientific justification to the efficacy of PCR yeah. was peer reviewed in only one day, which is um, unprecedented. Yeah. And so the science on which it is based, which is beyond my capability to understand, but it seems at the very least there's been, there was, there, there, I think there's a good question as to whether or not this test actually like is appropriate to test for COVID-19 to begin with. But in any case, if we do accept the premise that it can be used to identify COVID-19, um, this news, is, basically the WHO came out with new guidelines saying that the cycle threshold is too high. And so it's identifying a lot of false positives, meaning that it is identifying uh, COVID-19 cases, which are not actually COVID-19 cases. And they instruct doctors to, um, if someone is asymptomatic, meaning they're not demonstrating any symptoms, they do another test. Um, and they base their diagnosis on both a second test and the and the if sorry not if they're not if they if they have very mild symptoms and yet they still have a PCR uh, a positive PCR test that they're instructed to do a second test and base their diagnosis on um, symptoms. Um, so obviously, this is going to I. I don't know exactly how much this will decrease the number of cases. I think that the effect on this um, will actually be quite gradual. And the reason is because it, the guidelines leave a lot of discretion to the doctors themselves. So if the doctor still has a, you know, a, a, a mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic person come in and they have a positive test, they can still give a diagnosis of COVID-19 despite the guidelines because the guidelines are kind of you know, at the discretion of the doctors. But I think as more and more of this stuff is kind of, as, as the, you know, the COVID ideology is kind of losing, is, is kind of changing and, you know, we're moving towards a, a new paradigm, more and more doctors will suddenly have changes of heart as well and, and start diagnosing lower and lower rates of COVID-19. So I think that we're not going to see that, you know, sharp decline in cases, cases that we would love to see and that would completely vindicate um, us and other people. But um, I do think that the decline is going to come and no one's going to really, it's going to be for a lot of factors yeah. that no one's um, really going to acknowledge. This is part of a patchwork of stories which are emerging to, as you say, cast doubt on what the on the official narrative and the, the ever uh, the ever spiraling case numbers that are presented to us as facts, which have always had a lot more doubt to them than they are presented as in the media. Not that that doubt is ever allowed to be actually expressed. Another thing I wanted to mention was that there is an article in the Times today, which is, if you know anything about the Times and the British media market, it's long been uh, a mouthpiece for the Conservative Party. It's essentially the government newspaper in the lines that it takes. But today it's run an article which is critical of a key, another key component of the government's COVID policy. Which is this is an article by a guy called Ed Conway, who's the this is about as mainstream a guy as you could find in Britain. He's the uh, the economics correspondent, sorry, the economics editor for Sky News, which is again that's as uh, corporate a journalist as you could find. And he's done an article on what's known as the reproduction rate, which is the number that um, the reproduction rate was used to justify a lot of lockdowns on the grounds that it was this was the amount of other people somebody with COVID was going to infect 
And to cut a long story short, what he's saying in the article is that this R rate, this reproduction rate, isn't based on um, solid science. What it is, is it's, it's an estimate that is come up with by a group of people that work um, as advisors, scientific advisors to the British government. It's called the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Modeling, or SPIM for short. Now, what this is, is it's a teleconference where they, a series of people um, who are working off models and predictions ring in and essentially talk about, well, how many admissions to hospital, how, what are the number of cases, what are the number of deaths? And from that, we, they try to guess what the reproduction rate will be. Now, that, in essence, is what a lot of this, again, what a lot of the COVID policies have been based on, which is... A lot of the academics from 11 institutions do a meeting and look at this data as we've just covered through with the PCR test. The case numbers themselves may be, may be wildly inaccurate. So they're guessing off data which might be inaccurate what the reproduction rate could be. And the difference here is that the, the modelers have argued that it's consistently high, whereas the other body that's looking into it, Public Health England, have said that the number is actually lower. But this is the the higher number has been used to justify mm. lockdowns and all manner of restrictive measures for almost a year now. And again, it's just based on a it's just based on a guess, based on data which might not be reliable. Now, I personally I don't hold the the modelers or the scientists to be directly responsible for that. It was Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, and the other mem key members of the British government that chose to elevate that into an uh, you know uh, a holy edict. And this is one of the uh, the, fa the 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 major um, vanities of um, British politicians and probably uh, American, Canadian, French, German as well, which is that they think that if they've got a lot of very um, very official-looking data and they can cite a lot of numbers, that will make their case. But then you dive into it and you find the numbers are unreliable. It's just a guesstimate. That's a phrase that he's used in the article. So a lot of this stuff, which has just they, been used to justify the lockdowns, is deeply, un, deeply unreliable. And that's been this could have been ascertained from a, a year ago, nearly a year ago. That all that needed to be done was to ask seriously, well, how is that R number arrived at? Who sets it? But it seems that nobody did. The government just presented it, and then the capitalist media all ran with it. And it's only now, nearly a year later, that finally somebody's asked a question. Just as the narrative is turning, as you just previously said a minute ago, as the narrative's turning, suddenly it's safe to come out and say these things. Whereas people who raised it, in fairness, like Naomi Wolf and others, eight, nine months ago, were all demonised and called, you know, monsters who wanted to kill your granny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't even think we need to even... The more and more I read about this, the stupider I realize this whole thing really is. It's just based on a bunch of logically false and scientifically false, mm. but it just false premises. Um, you know, a higher R naught value, for instance, is like if you think that asymptomatic people spread this disease in a way that can really drive this pandemic, um, then that even if you have a really high R naught value, but you accept 
all we've ever known about respiratory viruses up until this point, that asymptomatic people do yeah. not drive a pandemic, then it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the lockdowns would have never been justified because you would just quarantine people who are symptomatic or at most people who are um, have a positive, mm. um, a positive test for the disease. Um, I think I think part of the reason why such unre- like as you're speaking about how the higher R naught value was used over the lower estimate, I think that the reason why that was done and also the reason why the so-called cycle threshold was that was used for the PCR test was so high. That, so I don't know if we described this earlier, but basically. Um, a higher cycle threshold is just the amount of times that they spin through the sample to catch uh, 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 pieces of the virus's um, RNA uh, or genetic code. Um, and so the more times you cycle through it, the higher the likelihood you'll catch, um, you know, just like like fragments of it. But it doesn't mean it could mean even though you might have a fragment of the disease left in your um, in, in your in your saliva, it could have been from like 30 mm. days ago or something, like way after you're symptomatic. But the reason why I think scientists thought it was okay to use such um, a, a, a an approach that produced such a high false positive rate is because, mm. of course, it's better to be safe than sorry, right? Like if um, you miss a a positive case, and you and you say, okay, you're not positive, just go out and be whatever you want, and you accept the idea that asymptomatic spread drives this pandemic then you, you, you would have done a lot of harm, right? And so I think that's the same thing with the r not value. Like it's better to assume a higher r not value and to put to justify more restrictions because in their mind, they're reducing harm overall. Like it's better to, you know, uh, lock down, um, you know, healthy and negative test people uh, if it means that, you know, we're, we're, it, it, this is actually, it actually makes sense in terms of reducing the spread of COVID-19. But so it's it just it's based on two like this, this uh, I think it really the crux of this issue, I really believe, is the asymptomatic spreads piece. And also, yeah, like the, the bourgeoisie's inability to see harm in a way that doesn't directly affect itself. Right. So for them, um, the harm is just dying or not dying of COVID-19, basically, because they don't want effect. Uh, yeah. They believe that this will affect production um, or at least they believed it when all of these things were being formulated. Um, but you know they're not seeing it through the lens of a totality as yes. the proletariat would be able is able to do right because they all they ever see is 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 the harm it does to their class yes. position that is their truth basically um, but it's not it, that is not the truth right so yeah so I really I think it really comes down to this um, and there is you know it's just it, but all of it is just based it seems on a <laughs> on a bed of lies. <laughs> And untruths and um, an abandonment of the scientific method by. <laughs> well, the that's a great advert for the British university system, right there. Um, so that <laughs> leads us nicely into the main body of today's program, which is about the lockdowns themselves, and more specifically about an argument which we both want to make, which is that the they were never the right decision locking down or advertising a lockdown was never something that was justified either by this disease or by uh, any of the previously Mm -hmm. very well documented scientific recommendations almost all of which were discarded by many of the people who had previously written them including 
Saint Anthony of Fauci, mm. um, whom, a man who I'm sure is going to be <laughs> canonised by uh, the Pope before the end of the year. So what we're looking at here then is so the, the the case against lockdown is something that we want to make um today and then we're going to deal with some of the politics of that as well and most specifically look at some of the objections you get from the left and how to uh how we would respond to those arguments and why this is fundamentally as Layla's just in, indicated in a previous comment on the the bourgeoisie's decision making. Why everything has to be seen through the lens of the class in power, and also the counterpoint, which is the through the through the view of the interests of the working class, which is the only truly global class. And that is what we're going to be looking at today. So exactly, I, let's start with the. Let's start with the basics, which is that when the lockdowns were initially announced, uh, certainly uh, as I've addressed in previous episodes of the podcast and in a video I did, as I've mentioned previously, um, I initially believed they would be something which would disrupt the bourgeoisie's ability to generate surplus value, to generate profit. This turned out to be not the case, or it was the case only very briefly, and it's not only is it not damaging them, it is something which is damaging to the the life of the working class itself. So I, my initial judgment was almost entirely wrong in that this would not be something that they would be doing if it was damaging their class. So let's roll into why these are, first of all, why these are the wrong decision. So do you want to start off with what your thinking on this is and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, I mean, initially when this stuff happened, as we were discussing before we started recording, um, there was initially some pushback from the the right. And there was a lot of talk about how we can't sacrifice economic health for people's health. That was the dominant kind of propaganda war that was happening. It was... The, like kind of the left saying we have to shut things down for the good of people's health and the right saying no it's not worth the the hit on economic growth and so for me of course I would you know I thought I mean of course it is worth shutting down economic growth for people's health like that's not even a question and so um you know I I was immediately on the side of locking down um I I because I I thought that it would actually help people like it would save lives um, and I think in, as I was finding out the truth behind these lockdowns and looking into what the science and the, like the actual facts that was that were under um, that were that all the stuff was based on, I still had like this emotional. I was held back emotionally because I didn't want to yeah. ally with the right, you know. Um, <laughs> and I, I know I just felt really wrong to make. To, to take the same position as like the right wing petty bourgeoisie, which, you know, I, I, I disagree with on, um, I've, I've assumed most things like I don't, I, I actually do think that small businesses, for instance, do treat their workers worse than in a lot of ways than big businesses, like in, in the, in the sense that there's worse wages, Less there's worse benefits, like it's more precarious, etc. So that was a big kind less unionization, like, 
Um, there's a lot more wage theft that goes on. They're not good places to work. And like, I think that they're romanticized to a degree that is just like based on, on, not based on workers' perspectives at all. Um, It's based on some self-romanticizing version from the petty bourgeoisie. So I'm not very sympathetic to them at all. Um, But um, yeah, I, I think we have to push back, number one, on this, on the idea that this was ever a real lockdown in the sense that the left would like mm. us to believe uh, that is possible. Like people were always going to work from the start of the pandemic. So I'm not so much opposing a lockdown as I am opposing the idea. Like I am of course opposing the lockdowns as they exist, but I think that I have, to, I really want to emphasize that it was never a lockdown for, for work. Like people were always going into work since the start. Another element of this is that, yeah. So, um, the, I I think it is, in a way, it is kind of a compromised position, right? In a way, because we are kind of accepting anti-lockdown, you know, I, I don't think truly addresses everything, all of the, like it doesn't address this issue, like it doesn't address all of the health issues that are involved in the situation. So it is, in a way, a less optimal position to take than perhaps something else that we'll, you know, we'll speak about some alternatives that we could have, that could, we could have perhaps pursued in, in a more kind of, pro-worker way but the fact is that sometimes in in politics and life like if class struggle is at a low level you have to you're forced to compromise it's a forced compromise as Lenin talks about and when they're unavoidable um you know you have to make them and we have to you know and, and like it you know it's it it's something that you do but it's like you like you you do it because you have to type thing. And so I'm not going to not take a anti-lockdown position just because um, it would it would allow me to take this some kind of like this, this pure proletarian stance where I'm just like, you know what, I'm not pro-lockdown, I'm not anti-lockdown, I'm something else. Like there was another way of doing this and that's my position. No, I'm going to take an anti-lockdown position because I do feel like there is um, a lot of harm being done to the working class and it's... Um, and I think an, an anti-lockdown position is actually a harm minimization strategy. And so, yes, it is a compromise, but it's one I'm willing to make. And I think that it is, so is it will be historically the right position. So let's deal with the political objection then, which is there's two, there's two layers to this. The first of all um, were, is the objection that somehow uh, lockdown policies are going to affect the bourgeoisie's ability to accumulate capital which has been shown, we've already discussed this in prior episodes, and it's manifestly wrong, given that the, the uh, corporate, given that corporate profits are up and also that the, any uh, suppression in GDP has been more than rebounded upon in um, the latest British economic statistics, certainly. And a similar story is told in the United States where there's a dip and then a rebound. And then the other false idea is that the is that somehow if you take a position which is also on the surface level shared by people who are from either the bourgeois or petty bourgeois right wing that somehow you are lining up behind them and again this is a very um this is a mistake that is made over and over again by the left in britain and it looks like the left in the in canada and the us as well which is this conception of who the dominant Mm -hmm. factions in the ruling class are and the dominant factions in the ruling class in britain which is 
the uh, financial guys, City of London, people like that, and then certain still big-scale um, owners or, well, big-scale landowners, big agriculture, a lot of the, those people haven't been affected by lockdown policies at all. Their ability to accumulate is uninterrupted. And also, there's, there's times in political history when you find yourself in agreement with a bourgeois faction or another. doesn't mean that your position is wrong. For instance, Marx spends mm -hmm. the last chapter of the Communist Manifesto talking about what he, he describes at the time as other forms of socialism, be it uh, feudal socialism, uh, true socialism, uh, petty bourgeois socialism, all of which are different trends that ultimately become reactionary. But sometimes the proletarian position shares a political demand mm -hmm. or a political position with them, even if they're doing it in a way that is from mm -hmm. another class's perspective. So I see something like this in the same way, which is that you have people from the bourgeois mm -hmm. right, from who are on the petty bourgeois right, who for various different reasons have adopted a stance opposed to lockdown um, for their own class-based reasons. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a proletarian case to be made mm -hmm. against it. It doesn't mean that you then automatically just take the other side. That is not a manner of thinking which is in any way, has anything in common with uh, dialectical materialism, with a class analysis mm -hmm. of society. That's just team sports, mm -hmm. fundamentally. And this was, I, I go on about this yeah. a lot because this was one of my formative experiences in actually um, applying the Marxist method was the, was the Brexit farrago, still going on, but largely settled which is at the time we had mm. the a, a big mm. section of the what I will call mm -hmm. the official left, largely they're the same people who are still screaming for more lockdowns now, who were lining up with support for the European Union, mm -hmm. arguing wrongly that the most powerful sections of the British ruling class were in favour of leaving. Mm -hmm. And their vision of the British ruling class was fictional. Their vision of the British ruling class was of the sort of... Um, um, hare and hound set, mm -hmm. monocle-wearing landowners who are dedicated to re-establishing the territorial British Empire and, you know, perpetuating uh, white supremacy. Now, that's me <laughs> exaggerating slightly, but I've, I've had people do long <laughs> arguments with me on Twitter arguing those very things. So they, they built this fantasy version of the ruling class which is not based on the reality of class dynamics today, which is that the dominant faction of the British ruling class is this uh, hyper-financialized sector, uh, which has an interest in the free movement of capital and labor, which is what was embodied in the EU. They were completely hardcore in favor of staying in. Some of They funded whole movements to stay in, and still do. Um, they still want to find a way around uh, the restrictions mm -hmm. placed on them by yeah. leaving. And the, the, the mainstream left and the official Marxists, what I would call the official Marxists, the academic Marxists, got this entirely wrong, was because they are either bourgeois or upper petty bourgeois themselves. To preserve their illusion of themselves as somehow rebels, as somehow revolutionary, they have to create a fantasy version of the ruling class of whom they are rebelling against. They can't deal with the reality of it because uh, it would seem that their class position mm -hmm. was rather more troublesome. And we've seen the same problem here, which is that when it came to mm. an actual 
the need to actually uh, inject working class politics into this, no one was doing it. No one was doing it at all. It was all just um, the mm. official left and the trade union leaders line up behind uh, whatever it is that the um, the bourgeoisie is prepared to offer. And there's this automatic assumption that if it's some kind of state intervention, it must be good. It must be good for the left, whatever the hell that is. Um, whereas the, there was a report released today, um, which some mm. dingbat Labour MP started tweeting about, uh, from the, I think it's called the Institute of Employment Studies, um, they did a report on the impact of uh, the COVID crisis and they found, surprise, surprise, that it was the casually employed who had been, uh, and the lowest paid, who had been the easiest to lay off because they were working in uh, low paid service jobs that were the first to be shed when the lockdown hit. Well, fucking hell! I didn't. I didn't need forty pages of a study to do to to tell mm. you that. All you needed was to actually look at the Office of National <laughs> Statistics report. And suddenly, these Labour MPs, months months after they've agreed with mm. the lockdown, are suddenly discovering that my fucking god, it's the lowest paid that have been completely fucked. And I was looking at it and thinking. Well, yes, it was John Trickett, who was one of Corbyn's old allies, who tweeted this. And I was thinking, yes, John, what a surprise. Capitalism fucks those who are the, at the bottom of the ladder the hardest. Well, well done, Mr. Socialist MP. Do you have any other revelations for us? Maybe you'd like to tell us about um, how capitalism makes money off the labour of workers. Tell us that one. That's a new revelation. I mean, this is the level of this is the level that and that's that guy's held out as like a hope of the left. And he's like realizing something that most people knew nine months yeah. ago. Um, so this is the this is the state of it. And their, their, their inability mm. to see this as a as their inability to see questions as always conditioned by the class dynamic is the problem here. So, you know, theoretically, if you were taking their line, it would have been impossible to oppose the Iraq war because a significant section of the bourgeoisie opposed it, a large section of like petty bourgeois nationalists opposed it, and even like you know um, the old Nazi party here opposed it. So it would have been impossible for us to be against that if we're using these rules, because you know. But this is where this is the wretched state that we've got into these days. Yeah, and I think um, for me as well, um, I think it's important to tell the truth. Like, I think it's important to to stand, like, as I've said, like, I think it's important to stand for objective reality. And the reality of these lockdowns is that um, it's only ever been a lockdown on the social lives, the lives of people and their ability to, you know, see one another, to to enjoy their leisure time and things of that nature, to enjoy public space, to enjoy access to healthcare and things like that. So how can I be, how can I not be opposed to that? It's, it's impossible. Like I, we have to be truthful about what these lockdowns are actually, have actually been for the proletariat, what the, the, the faulty scientific basis on which they're, they, they stand. And we have to be honest with people about what the actual risks of this disease are. And when you are truthful and when you are honest with people, most people cannot see the, the reason for these lockdowns. It doesn't mean that you know, the anti-lockdown is necessarily the optimal way to go, but it def definitely does not justify a pro-lockdown position. And it and it really causes, like, 
for me, it um, any justification justification one might have in terms of life minimization is is completely taken away when you realize that these lockdowns probably don't do anything at all. So yeah, I think it's important. You know, no one is being honest with working people right now. Everyone's lying to them. Everyone's being hysterical. Everyone is you know using their the the pro social inclinations that people have and the feelings of of love and friendship they have with one another to like like to 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 lock like to to place them under house arrest when they've done nothing wrong i think that's immoral and i think that you know the the fact of the matter is that as mark said um you know belief in falsity and miracles is as a refuge of the weak and as Lenin says, like the proletariat is strong, and we we don't need to take refuge in miracles. We we need we 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 can only be um, strengthened by the truth because our truth is the universal truth. It is the actual truth. So I think that um, we you know even though yes, like obviously class struggle is at an old t- is very low, and like we can't really do much. We have to at least stand for what we know is true. And what I know for, is true for sure is that these lockdowns only hurt people. They do know they, they don't have any benefit. And so I can't stand yeah, exactly. for them. And that and means I'm anti-lockdown. So let's venture further into this discussion by talking about some of the, the damaging impacts then, shall we? There was a morning consult poll that's been released recently, I think a couple of days ago, covering in the United States the um, a poll of people as to how they felt their... Um, that various factors had either got better or gotten worse across 2020. Now, across all the different social economic groups surveyed, um, only those who are uh, of a postgraduate education and on more than $100,000 a year have said that their various different um, life chances and circumstances have gotten better in the last year. Everybody else said... Everything else, everything has gotten worse. Mm. Personal finances, mental health, job security, um, take-home pay, physical mm. health, yep. personal mm-hmm. life, work-life balance. Interestingly enough, work-life balance goes right the fuck down mm-hmm. um, mm. because there is no um, life outside yeah. of work. If you're not locked down, you're just going to work and coming back. The social element of your life exactly. is gone. Yep. Now, that is important because exactly. you know, generations of uh, workers mm-hmm. struggled to achieve the old the old slogan from a hundred years ago, or longer, which is eight hours of labor, eight hours rest, eight hours for ourselves, and that element has gone out the window. I mean, that's an element mm. that capital always takes tries to take back anyway because constant adjustments to the working day. But that's just a, a top level overview of the damage it's actually done and who's benefited. Well, it's the it's the very richest. It's the bourgeoisie themselves who've benefited from it because under normal under circumstances of yeah. low class struggle where any policy is implemented like this they're the ones who are always going to gain out of it do you do you want to go further and expand on any of that hmm. well i mean I, i've spoken like in previous episodes about like the the kinds of things that are happening i think i don't i think it's not necessary to I mean it is of course you can go and dig through the news stories and look through the data and just find egregious uh, crimes against people Um, you know for me like what's been really painful to read about is what's happened to the elderly um, and their families they've been separated from one another 
Um, so many elderly people have died alone and in isolation because of these restrictions. Um, people have missed being by their parents' side when they passed away. That kind of harm for me is something that goes above and beyond. Like it encompasses, like it, it's such an egregious assault against humanity that I, I can't even wrap my mind around the harm that's been done to the working class. Like it's just inca incalculable, just like based on that one data point alone. But there's so many other things that's happened because the thing is like, society like um you know the the web of social relations in which the proletariat exists is complex and it's it's evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years um and like when you introduce a brute force method like social isolation done over the course of months and months it's impossible to know the varying effects that it will have on people and on their social relations it's impossible to know what kind of mental health effects being isolated from your friends and family has on you. It's like no bourgeois scientist will ever be able to quantify that harm. Um, and more so, we don't know what physical effects that will carry with it downstream. So for instance, in Canada, um, there's been a drastic increase in prescriptions for SSRIs, which are medications that are used to treat depression and anxiety. We don't know what kind of health effects, like it's it's known that there is a connection between mental health and physical health, but we don't know like how that will affect people down the line. There's just, we just have no idea. And so I think actually people will make the argument that we should implement lockdowns as a precautionary principle. But I think that the precautionary principle would actually point to not implementing the lockdowns, especially since they lack any basis in good evidence. Um, and so I don't know why there's been such a disregard for this aspect of, of, of harm when it comes to these lockdowns within the left, as if it doesn't matter that people are being separated from one another, as if that's just a, a minor detail of these lockdowns that people can just power through. I, I don't think that's minor. I think that's extremely severe. And I think um, to like disregard pe people's mental anguish um, because supposedly like, and to say, like, I'm not saying that we should not do our best to prevent death. I absolutely do believe that. But like, you know, it, it's still it should still be taken into account when we're formulating public policy. Like, and it hasn't been taken into account at all. Like the common answer is, well, just meet your friends over God, Zoom. that would be depressing. Like, it, <laughs> as if, as if a... <laughs> I, I hate Zoom. I, I hate video conferencing. I... I, I despise it. It makes me feel awful. Um, and it's meant that I've been able to see my friends and family less as well because I just, it's not, it just, it's not the same. And to say that you can replace an organic physical relation with a computer screen and it's just the same thing is a very bourgeois way of looking at the world. And it's not one that I ascribe to. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't. I think the harms to the proletariat have been incalculable, and I don't. I really don't think there's going to be anything to show for it. I don't think there's going to be any significant lives at the end of the day when all the analysis is done and stuff. Because of course, bourgeois mm. scientists can only ever give us the answers after the fact. Um, we will see that there has been little benefit and much harm done, even in terms of just strictly physical health. Because you know, as people know. Things like cancer screenings are down, treatments, cancer treatments are down, surgeries are down. A whole bunch of elective uh, surgeries are put on hold because of these lockdowns. People have been going to the hospital and the doctor and the dentist less because they're scared. 
Um, so it's a complete mess. It's going to cause so much harm, not this year maybe, but for sure in the next like yeah. medium term, I, I like five to years, ten on years. Just a couple of points there, which is what this what this really represents in the form of the lockdown is the is the boiling down of human beings to their the essence, which is the essence for us as human beings for capitalism is well, are you capable of accumulating? Are you capable of serving your role in the accumulation of capital? If you are, then well, get out, get out to it, and then um, exactly. we'll, yep. don't go anywhere and don't get infected and don't get um, any any other illness because we want you back in the day, the next day, or the day after, and the day after that. So what we're going to do is we're going to completely destroy your social life, mm-hmm. your family or family and extended family life in order to ensure that you can carry on working and that there can be absolutely no interruption there. So it's the boiling down of everybody to Mm. that essence, which is horrific in its sheer raw inhumanity. And the other thing I would say is that the reason why a lot of the leftists have been all for it is because a lot of these people, particularly the younger end, uh, live already um, isolated, urbanized lives that are rootless and distant. And that can't be underestimated. And I know this for a fact because it's the kind of life I used to mm. lead, which is that you you are in an apartment in the since in the city centre, you're cut off from where you grew up, you're cut off even from uh, most of the people that you work with because everybody, you know, or as they certainly used to do, uh, commutes in. Um, you sat there um, watching a Netflix special or doing something else which involves nobody else. And you are, have become distant from all the things that made you mm. who you are. And that can't be underestimated in terms of the impact mm. that it has on mentality, particularly for the, the class of uh, wannabe public policymakers, mm. wannabe um, NGO people, leftish officialdom in the trade union bureaucracy, are all leading these isolated lives already. So they don't see too much of an issue with it because they've already become uh, God's lonely man. Or woman, um, and mm. that's part of the reason why this has passed with little comment from traditional leftist organisations. That so many of their personnel are already were already there, or approve of that kind of thing, and that's where you get uh, things like mm. um, also the the rabid hostility to traditional family units as well. That also impacts because a lot of these people don't think that traditional family units are an, are, are a positive thing. Also a factor. Yeah, I mean... No, no, I was done. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think... I do think class position has a lot to do with it because I feel like when you're wealthier, um, you live in a nice home, you know, you have someone to help you, you can order things, have them delivered to your house, like you're you know working from home um i mean i i obviously that is much nice it's like a it's a more tolerable situation if you have a nice big house and you have a backyard and you have access to your own little piece of of space so yeah that is a little kind of a better situation to be in than if you're living in a cramped apartment um you know and all of the parks are suddenly closed now um, as they were in the beginning of the pandemic earlier on in Toronto, for instance, and so your kids can't go play anymore any, anywhere. 
Um, and so you're stuck in the house with like your kids and like now you can't reach out to your parents or your friends for babysitting. And so just just no time off. And so I think that it, I think that the tolerability of these lockdowns are very much shaped by the lives that these these people kind of live. Like I have a friend who, you know, has a home gym and has all these different things. And, and so for him, yeah, I mean, it's just meant like less traveling, less commuting, which isn't too bad, like on measure. But that's not that's the reality for most people. Most people don't like they need public space, like the access to public space was something that was fought for. It wasn't just something that the bourgeoisie gave to us. Like we had to fight for, you know, funding for playgrounds and, you know, museums and like community centers. Like these are things that we continue to fight for and that are continuously attacked. And so to say that we can just disregard them with no with no thought is is so it's yeah. an insult to people who fought for them and died for them it really is and um it's just a very narrow like a historical way of looking at our society yeah and, and how i would also here. like to reaffirm what you said about the the one of the worst things about this whole affair has been the way that people's best instincts have been preyed upon like people want to protect their family members they want to protect their community and workmates mm-hmm. from uh what they were told is a very dangerous disease and so the the best instincts of people have been preyed upon to support some of the worst policies. And this isn't the first time it's happened, obviously. It happens over and over again. But it's the first time that I've really seen it um, up close in terms of it happening right in front of your eyes. And you can say, OK, well, all of people's um, best instincts are just being flat out manipulated now. And you can see it. One of the things about social media is you can see the the ruling class memeing things into existence in real time. And the other really annoying thing, and the British ruling class do this all the fucking time, is the <laughs> constant World War Two callbacks. We're in a battle. We're on the front line. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, man. If you're, if you're not actually getting bullets shot at you, just stop it with the war analogies, honestly. Because the, this this country is, you know, perpetually calling back to World War II because it was the last thing it can portray itself as having done, which was positive. Certainly, the ruling class can, and it's just the constant callbacks. It's just so fucking annoying. Mm. Because I remember my elder relatives when they were around who did actually live through that period and fight in that war, and none of them talked about it. Because it was just something that they did and then they wanted to get back on with the rest of their lives. Mm. It's these, like, soy boy politicians like, you know, Boris and other just Mm. cretins like Keir Starmer going on about frontline war footing. It's like, you, if you lot had Mm. a water pistol fired at you, you would evacuate (laughs) your bowels quicker than a fucking water slide. And and it's a tremendously annoying thing. (laughs) That that doesn't really add anything to the analysis, but it's it's something that anybody in anybody in this country will be familiar with. I know Biden's using the war language as well. It's just <laughs> fucking stupid. Anyway, that's the end of my uh, that's the end of my uh, rant about the British media's war obsession for the day. So, um, <laughs> do we? Do yeah, we? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I I do think it's yeah. I, I think it's interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. There's a bit of. Go no, ahead. no, you're Am not I, off the I, um, oh no, uh, connection. Hello? Just got a bit shaky for a second. Right. Um, 
Uh, but yeah, as you were saying, um. <laughs> see, having a conversation see, over this is just or this is Skype just is just um, not the same. This, this like, is it's just not, highlighted everything we were saying. No, exactly. This is the this is the reality that many people have endured for months and been told that it's just mm. the same. It's it, it's just it's fine. It's this fine. Is what, no worries. This like, is why for future you know, episodes, um, friends over Zoom. Yeah, have a Zoom have funeral. Zoom this is why for future episodes, I will be taking a private jet to Canada. <laughs> Um, as as long as long as that check as long as that check from the Russian government <laughs> arrives. Um, okay. Uh, do we have anything? Uh, do we have anything else we want to go through on the on on the lockdown cases? I think we've we've covered most of it, haven't we? Okay. So, do we want to then look yeah, at like if not mm-hmm. lockdown, then what? Um, a touch of um, a touch of uh, future casting or utopianism, perhaps. Um, because we we've made that the case that we both think that the the lockdown policy was as bit is ultimately going to be very damaging to the working class wherever it is in, uh, imposed, and so let's look at instead of the uh, rather silly demands that a lot of the left has come out with and the self defeating demand demands that the a lot of the trade union leaders have made, let's look at what could have been uh, pro worker policy then. Rather than it, we, uh, the, the the lockdown policy that was imposed by the, the various different capitalist governments, so one idea that I had just off the top of mm. my head was that rather that or well, not an idea but a concept I want to push into the conversation and explore further is that a lot of this decision making from the capitalist governments does come from the fact that you have. Uh, a lot of degeneration in the the personnel that the ruling class have inside the capitalist governments. Like, you know, Boris, Keir Starmer, Biden, uh, Justin Trudeau, Macron, none of these characters would probably have gotten anywhere near high office 30 to 40 years ago. And it's because you not only you have the degeneracy in the ruling class and like the people who are getting to the top are less and less capable and added to this is what i've spoken about and written about before which is the um the technocratic governance model that's been pushed in capitalist governments since really the end of the 80s the idea that it's all just uh neutral evidence driven science-based decision making now that's a very powerful um piece of discourse in bourgeois political circles and that's what a lot of this has also been conditioned by so like boris johnson for instance and most of the rest of the cabinet won't admit that what's being done is actually a political decision they say it's about it's purely scientific we're following the science we're believing the science when in actuality as you can as we've outlined through the the, the flawed testing system, the uh, the uh, reproduction number being a guesstimate, the science itself is at best very, very flawed. So what's actually required of a political leader in any system is a decision that's based on a number of factors. So it's based on scientific advice. It's also based on economic advice. It's based on uh, potential social impacts, as we've just been discussing, of a lockdown policy or indeed any policy but instead of which they hide behind this sort of uh, scientist technocratic position that they, they do that so it can't be argued with 
It's a way of stopping debate. It's like, well, we followed the science. Don't you like science? Don't you fucking love science? We do. And that's one of the biggest problems here. And it's also one of the reasons why, and Zizek talks about this in a couple of his books, why there are sometimes overlaps between people who uh, are Marxists and some people who are bourgeois right-wingers is that at least both of those both of those groups of people both of those political factions or class factions still at least see the political as something which is actually political they're not trying to neither ourselves nor the elements of the right are trying to hide behind scientism trying to hide behind technocracy to justify decisions See, mm-hmm. to me, they, it's a question of looking at those different factors and then reaching a decision based based on the politics of all of that. And But this is something that the, the, the mature capitalist system and its technocratic system of government can't do. So... That's my open. That's my opening thought. But do you want to go either, either further into that or look at actual alternatives that could have been explored here? Yeah, I mean, I, one point I want to bring up right now is, um, I think that when as the the facts start coming in and all of these changes start happening all at once. Uh, in terms of like the new science that's coming in, in terms of people changing their minds suddenly, it might come off as quite conspiratorial. But really what we're seeing as Marx demonstrates in his philosophy is just like, I, you know, it's, it's just history happening. Like, and, and history is a result of human activities. And in the absence of class struggle, all we're seeing is the bourgeoisie's activities moving through, moving us through history. Um, and so it might seem quite ridiculous and it might seem quite odd that all of these people are just suddenly switching and stuff like that. But when you realize that the goal of the bourgeoisie is to maintain um, class domination and that is the overdetermining factor in all of the superstructure, um, then yeah, like it, it makes perfect sense. It's not, there's no need for a conspiracy. It's just, it's just, this is just capital. This is bourgeois mm. politics at its best, at its purest. Um, so I think, I think that my position on what could have been done is maybe a bit more libertarian than you. Um, I mean, obviously there, we can look at a few countries that did better. Um, like, so Sweden, did a, a, a lockdown light approach. So did New Zealand. So did Australia. Um, but I actually am not pro any lockdown. I don't think that, I think first of all, it was wrong to scare people and to whip up people into a hysteria over this disease and make them f- feel as if that they are always a possible threat to their friends and families, even if they're asymptomatic, because asymptomatic spread is a real thing. I think that was extremely wrong and immoral. So I think, first of all, the first thing I would have done is tell people the truth, give them the right information within the right context, show them the actual effects of this disease by age and the likely long-term effects of this disease based on what we know from other coronaviruses. So I think the first thing is just equip people with the right information. And that's what scientists should have done. They're still failing to do so. Um, Second of all, I think that, like starting from my libertarian approach i am more on the side of enabling people to make decisions for themselves than um 
putting restrictions on their liberty as much as possible. So for me, I would make sure that we have a healthcare system that is robust enough to take to 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 tolerate a high, you know, more hospitalizations than usual. Um, you know, the, the current healthcare systems that we have in most of the world aren't able, aren't able to tolerate regular amounts of yeah. of flu every season, right? Like in Canada, we've had hallway medicine for the last few years. It's it's nothing new. So I think that at a, at a, at a very kind of minimum, we would need a robust healthcare system that is robust enough to at least accommodate regular human interactions of people seeing themselves, seeing each other, seeing their friends, seeing their families, spending time with one another. I think that's a very reasonable ask. Um, I think that Iceland did quite well with this. Um, and I, I think that they were able to do so because they caught the first case early and immediately went into a very robust contact tracing and quarantining um, approach. So what they did is that they were quickly able to identify the cases that had been um, initially infected. They asked those few dozen people to quarantine for 14 days, and they were able to basically able to get this disease under control extremely quickly. They were able to do so, I think, because, and they never really had any lockdown procedures. Yeah. Life has gone on pretty much per normal uh, since then. They were able to do so because they have a small population. They they you know they're an island nation, so there isn't as much people uh, th- through fair. So if we were in a theoretical socialist system where there was international coordination and there was real scientists that actually followed did science, um, then yeah, I think that kind of approach would have been very feasible. Like if you know, for instance, the proletarian government in China or in the China Chinese region told us that this was coming, we could have stopped migration for a while to get things under control and then just reassess what's going on. And I think once we get, we got like, you know, a better idea of the actual risks involved with COVID-19, who's affected, who's not affected, ramp up the healthcare system as much as possible in order to enable people to make their own decisions and give recommendations based on best available evidence. But I, for one, I'm against coercive measures and like locking people down with fines and stuff like that. Like I think that at most these should have been recommendations. Um, in the case of like actually infected people who are symptomatic, then I would be for and force quarantine, but only in that situation because there's good evidence yeah. that symptomatic people spread disease. I would say that my own uh, my own selection of recommendations based on I'll start off with what could have feasibly been done in this system though. It should be emphasised that the uh, public health administration in this country has been eviscerated by cutbacks for a number of years. But in terms of actual lockdown versus other measures, I think the lockdown in Britain was always, again, always wrong and always something which was differentiated sharply by class. For instance, they never stopped very rich people from coming into or leaving the country via the airports. They never locked down the airports. They've only just put down a very small restriction on traveling mm-hmm. via air now, uh, nearly a year into it. And that's largely a that's largely a PR move. Mm. It's not something that's actually going to affect uh, those with the money to come in and go out as they please. But going back to what could possibly be done, at the very beginning, uh, I agree with your point, which is what they should have been doing is actually being as honest as you could do with people. And I would put the responsibility for that not on scientists but on Mm -hmm. political leaders the scientist's job is to provide the advice and Mm. this goes back to the point i was making earlier it is the prime minister's job in this country or your country or the 
president and governors and congress or whatever arrangement you they 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 have towards health care responsibilities in the states there is the political leader's job to take that advice bounce it against the economic impacts and the other impacts and then reach the decision all they've been doing now is they've been hiding behind their carefully yeah. selected bits of so-called scientific advice so whereas what actually should have been done is somebody should have stepped forward, the Prime Minister should have stepped forward and says, this is the situation, this is the risk that it poses, and therefore what we're going to do is we're going to, I think the best you could have uh, done in terms of this country was temporary halt on um, air travel, certainly. You could have done that. The airlines would have screamed and shouted, but we underwrite the airlines with millions of fucking pounds anyway. From, from in terms of public money all all nations do that we're supposed mm. to have this privatized national airline in british airways but it's still given huge uh, subsidies by the state so you could have preserved the airline industry uh being mothballed for a month or so but of course that would have been something which would have impacted upon the lives and the ability of rich people to do business so that didn't get done but it could have been in terms of the uh the mm. contact tracing right. that was yeah. a disastrous uh, in policy implementation in this country because it was handed over to the private sector cost over and initially it cost 12 billion pounds for something that the initial uh, track and trace system was a complete failure it was just handed over to a bunch of private sector consultants some of whom were earning up to two thousand pounds a day whereas what you could have done was invested in the the local government public health centres where they had the knowledge of their local area to actually do track and trace in an effective and cost-effective manner. See, what we ended up with was a massively expensive system that doesn't work. If they just put the money back mm. into the public health system that, that is run by the local councils, they could have traced people, say, somebody gets off uh, a plane from a holiday in a country with a lot of infections, they could have been tracked and traced by the local government there and then given recommendations about how to take care of their, of their own health, be it temporary isolation in place for, um, combined with uh, visits from either um, a health visitor, practice nurse or doctor, and then, you know, if necessary, followed up with potential hospital visit if they develop a severe case of it, which most people don't. Again, that would have been a lot more efficient than what we actually got, but because the British government is such a... Yeah, on top of being obviously a capitalist government that takes decisions for the ruling class, it's also an incredibly corrupt one. Uh, like the whole system of contracting out public sector work to mm. um, private sector consultancy firms and big multinational privatizers like uh, G4S, Serco, Capita. That's a tremendously inefficient system, which is just involves huge public subsidies going to shareholders basically and to deliver services which has to be continually bailed out by the public sector anyway and then in terms of the um, limited quarantines you could have had limited quarantines of certain areas perhaps if there was a severe enough a number of outbreaks there that could have been done if you re if we reached a point maybe not with covid but with something that was actually more dangerous where you would have had to say severely restrict a certain industry for instance uh, hospitality catering where there has been a lot of uh, uh, unemployment in all the countries affected then if you to take a step further away from the setup we have now if you had actual um so actual socialist system in place 
with a national economic plan, you could actually redeploy people away from one sector and into another if you needed to. Say if you needed to shut up shop in one particular sector, you could have a national economic plan in place which then took that labour and put it into different sectors where the, those people could carry on working and earning a living, not just get tossed onto um, a dole queue somewhere and lose months on end of their life. Because we know that I've been on uh, the uh, the uh, universal credit system in Britain for months on end, and if all you're doing all day is, even if you're job hunting, it's a terrifically dispiriting experience. But if you're just sat there for months on end, trying to find something to do, locked down, it's going to have a severe impact on your mental and physical well-being. So why not use a system under a national economic plan to rede mm -hmm. redeploy people into sectors where you need them? Because the, the labour demands of the economy do shift and you do need more people mm -hmm. in one area, less people in another. And under a capitalist system, that does kind of happen, but it's planning according to the needs of the capitalist class. So if you're planning according to the needs of the working class, then you could do that. Mm. You could redeploy people in a way that would be beneficial to the wider economy and to them as individuals. You can't do that under capitalism because that's not how the system plans itself out. So that's my couple of ideas. Uh, I think I'm probably less authoritarian at the beginning, at the end of this, than I am at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Same. Um, I, 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 yeah. I, I, I thought you were gonna. You wanted like a full utopian uh, image, but yeah, like I think for sure. Um, I think the very least we could have done in Canada would have just been to train more personal care workers and get them into the home so that there's sufficient staffing. I don't. I still don't agree that isolating the elderly and locking them down. I mm. think that the. I honestly think that the harms outweigh the good in that situation anyways but at least like the thing is um as i've spoken about before a big reason why the in canada especially the toll yeah. the um proportion of deaths in long-term care is very high it's um between yeah it's almost 80 percent of deaths are from long-term care and as i've also spoken before a big reason is because workers go into work even when they're sick for various reasons economic reasons also interpersonal reasons like they don't want to let their coworkers down like a lot of different reasons why um and so yeah i mean something that oddly the left bourgeoisie is just talking about now is implementing a, a mandating of a, a um a a provincial um 10 day uh yeah. sick days 10 sick days for every worker I don't think that would go far enough because, again, a lot of the time, even when you mm. when they do have sick days, they just simply do not take them. So, I mean, the problem just goes so deep. Like, it's just it, it really is a problem of capitalism more than anything. And whatever um, whatever, like kind of ways we could have addressed this, it would it wouldn't fully address everything that's going on. But yeah, for sure. Like, I honestly believe that if governments had just done nothing, and just like um, continue with the status quo and just not scared people and um, made them afraid of infecting their loved ones at all times for months on end, I think that would have been less harmful overall than, you know, the approach that we've taken, which is to lock everyone down for months on end. We still had a, a, a lot of deaths in long-term care. I'm not convinced that all the lockdowns did anything to rectify that. So... I mean, yeah, like I think, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, like for, like you're saying, we 
we had like a huge amount of unemployment earlier on. Why not put people to work doing things that are good, doing things that are socially necessary, doing thing that things that allow them to connect with other people, like with with other generations. Like I, I would have been very happy to go work in a long term care home, um, quit my current job and do that. Um, you know that that would have been more akin to a war effort. You know that would have been more akin to what happened in World War Two, as the bourgeoisie keeps on making kind of references to that like that would have been something that would have been heroic but what we did was not heroic it was it was it was mm. it was worse than it was well it encouraged um, it encouraged some of the worst behavior um that you see in communities and workplaces it encouraged like um people ratting on their neighbors for having gatherings of more than four people or something it encourages like um people to be to be afraid and withdraw from social contact which is always more damaging for the wider society than it first appears it encourages uh different generations to be afraid of each other again these are all reactionary yeah. outcomes and which they're completely yeah. exactly they're completely reactionary yeah. so this is, this is a, the perfect an way of putting that's it. an overview yeah. of, of what Mainly we're dealing in our recommendations there with things that could be done but weren't. I mean, the the thing that I mentioned about uh, national economic and national national labor plan, you could you could really only do that in a uh, society where capitalism had already been ended because at the moment any any attempt to do <laughs> national plans of labor deployment is conditioned through the needs of capital. And the needs of capital are not the needs of the working class. Um, what I've yeah. learned in the last year is that repetition is key. So to re keep repeating it, even if you've got the best looking policy in the world that you think is going to do marvelous things for the working class, <laughs> if you filter it through the bourgeois state, it's going to end up looking like a piece of dog shit on toast. <laughs> um, that's just the way the system is. Even when the working class is much, much stronger organizationally 50 odd years ago, you still ended up with it all being mm. diluted to fuck and then bent to the needs of capital. Unless, and this is you know, for future episodes, yeah. unless you actually are in a situation where the workers can have command over the state because it's the workers who are running society, then you are always going to end up with this sort of compromised mess at best or something which is horrific and anti-worker but marketed as mm -hmm. pro-social at worst, which is what we've got now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's uh, it's a tough situation. Um, it, it's difficult to take. I mean, it's difficult to take, like, to think about what could have been done better because as you're saying it's so difficult to do working class politics of any any like even marginal working class politics within a capitalist system it's really difficult to you know extract compromises so-called compromises and um you know have them enacted in a way that is in the long term you know has at least some benefit for the working class so it's difficult to talk about like what could have been done better um yeah but there's definitely yeah. ways that it could have been done less worse i think and um, so I think, you know, I don't think that it is, I think it is a more moral position to say I would like to minimize harm given the lack of 
of class struggle that we have and the lack of power the working class has, um, it's better to minimize harm. And I think, yeah, like taking an anti-lock, as I've, I'm, I'm repeating myself at this point, but I think that the anti-lockdown position is a position that does minimize harm overall in its totality, which, you know, it's difficult to say exactly if I, I mean, it's not that difficult. I really, I really do think that we'll find in the next few years, the next few months that as more and more data is being collected on the harms these lockdowns have done, it will have outweighed any kind of benefit on a strict kind of physical health basis, even um, let alone the other aspects that we speak about, like social, yeah, mental, et cetera. Um, yeah. But what do you say to the, what do you say to the thing, to the idea that like, well, you know, well, I'm trying to think of like some. Uh, why do you want to kill my grandma? Put, that's think. usually the level. Of, that's like, that's the level of debate now. Yeah, like yeah, that, I think that's a good one. Yeah, like are you okay? Therefore, for <laughs> are you okay with people getting infected and dying? Yeah, like are you okay that's with that happening? the level of debate on British thing. media. Uh, <laughs> I would say that if that was if that has been posed to me over and over again, and I would say that well, this is a matter of how you assess the needs of a nation which is that if if we are going to go mm. down the route of deciding that this particular illness is more dangerous than what more dangerous than all those people all that more dangerous for people than cancer when there's been so many cancer treatments cancelled more dangerous for people with other long-term and chronic health conditions mm. that if not treated regularly will lead to potentially fatal outcomes? Is it more dangerous than um, the mm. addictions that will spiral through the lockdown for people who are either put out of work or placed um, on a long-term furloughing? Is it going to be more dangerous for the society as a whole than, for the, than it is to have a generation of uh, children who will grow up through the school system falling consistently behind on their learning? All of these are dangers to a society. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The problem with the media-driven narrative over this, over COVID mm -hmm. itself, has been that suddenly every single other social ill has been crowded out of the marketplace, is deemed to be unworthy. And what happens with capitalist yeah. media is that yeah. months later, yeah. sometimes years later, the truth will be told. This is the fabled freedom of speech everybody's always so keen on. Yeah, the freedom of speech under capitalism <laughs> is freedom to tell the truth after it matters. It's not freedom to tell the truth when it matters. Because when it matters, <laughs> the absolute what is still mm -hmm. staggering to me is the way that the entire capitalist media fell in lockstep with the government's message again. To return to something we mentioned earlier, the questions over how the R rate was come up with, those questions weren't asked. It was just, right, okay, the science says that. The science must be right. Mm. I fucking love science, me. And it could because mm. that's become <laughs> such a article of faith in the era of technocratic government, government that if a politician says, well, I'm following the science, and a scientist says, you know what, he's right, then that's it. That's all that needs to be discussed. And then we'll find out years later or months later that mm. it wasn't or it was contested or that there was other things that they could mm. have done. And mm. that's my very long way of saying mm -hmm. what we value in terms of 
the how we want our nation mm. or our world to be cannot be just the demands of the ruling class it cannot be set we cannot set our values on ruling class values or values given to us by the ruling class because that's what's been done here we're told to jump to and value this right well next year it'll be valuing yeah. something else and then something else again if we keep up this dance of just going with whatever it is that the capitalist governments say is what you should be worried about today and if you don't then you're an incredibly bad person who wants to carry out mass biological warfare then we are always going to be dancing to the 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 tune of the exploiter class and we need to yeah. change our thinking we need to get away from their point. ability to hold things mm -hmm. over you and try and emotionally blackmail you into compliance by preying on your better instincts mm -hmm. and that's something that we need to break out of and mm -hmm. i hope that maybe this is something that we can we can perhaps do through our own small contributions but uh, everybody should start thinking of this in terms of why is what is the class interest of this person saying this thing to me what is he actually looking after and again this isn't a conspiratorial mm -hmm. thing you can yeah. trace the interest that boris johnson represents just by looking at his own origins and who's very very keen on his political career it's you know the city of london it's the major banks mm -hmm. it's the uh, further than that it's the major landowners it's the arms companies it's the important bits of british capitalism that's who he speaks for because that's his class not a conspiratorial thing it's just the way society is organized and so that's the different way we need to look at it yeah i 100 agree i think it, it, that's correct and it's not you know it's not an easy thing to do like there's Politics is not easy. It's not easy to take positions and follow through with them and accept the consequences of that. Um, but, I mean, I think you have to be brave and you have to, like, I think there's this huge effort in, in bourgeois society to diminish people's confidence in their own ability to reason and their own ability to see reality for what it actually is. And um, I think that is wrong like I think anyone anyone can see and understand objective reality anyone can access it if they use dialectical materialism for instance like and anyone can do that like it, it, it takes a bit of practice but anyone can do it and I think that um, you know when you just accept bourgeois logic it blinds you to like exercising your own ability to make your own decisions and see the world for what it actually is um, and so, and I think that the kind of the shame associated with expressing the logical outcome of that, like for instance, taking an anti-lockdown position is part of that effort to diminish people's capability and, um, confidence in them, in their, in their reason. Um, and I, so, yeah, so I think, I think we will be proven correct. And I think we are being proven correct actually, like before our eyes, but like, um, yeah, like I, I definitely think that, yeah, exactly. Like I think there needs to be a reorientation within people's minds, like looking like just like it's starting from the basis that you you do not need to just blindly follow the experts in our society. Like you can assess the situation for yourself. Like 
there's a lot of information out there. Like a lot of stuff is produced under capitalism, a lot of different research. Like you can assess it for yourself and you can come to your own conclusions and you have the right to demand evidence and you have the right to be convinced and you have the right to, um, you know, you have the right to uh, question people's premises. Um, and I think that scientists and the bourgeoisie say, well, we can't do that because you don't have training in X, Y, Z. But anyone can do that. And anyone, and we should always be doing that. And I think that the, the, part of the reason why these lockdowns happened is because no one was really doing that, unfortunately, um, including myself. So, yeah, so I think um, it's, it's a good, it's a good, it's good to kind of start from that position that we will necessarily have a different perspective than the bourgeoisie. And how to come to that perspective is a, is, is a method and you have to be ready to accept that it will lead you to conclusions and lead you to truths that are in contra to the dominant narrative. And that's not easy. It's just not, but it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. It, it, and it has to be done. that's a perfect place to end the episode, I think. And to follow on from the discussion we've been having there, yeah. we'll be doing a follow-up on the question of um, capitalist or bourgeois science and that will be that will be next the next episode because as this whole incident has shown over and over again the science is not uh, the science is not a thing or field of study which is somehow above and beyond the political and the political is conditioned primarily by class forces so what we'll be doing in an episode next week is looking at well what effect does that have and how has that affected the COVID response specifically, but more widely in terms of what does the bourgeois science actually look like? What does the incorporation of the scientific process into capitalist production actually look like? So follow up on that next week, but all remains for me to say is thank you everybody for listening. We hope that you are getting uh, as much out of this as we are in doing it, and we hope that it helps you have the confidence to actually start applying some of these methods of thinking to your own analysis because that's really what this is all about so uh, did you want to say anything to finish off um nope there you Just, go uh, do not trust the experts do not and love science do not love do science. not love science do not put up <laughs> that's that a meme. great place to start with step away from the meme okay um with that <laughs> Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again next week.